means, you know, you're more annoyed by potholes than you are by, like, your water. Than potable water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Amy McIntosh, Managing Editor of Water Quality Products. I'm Warren Baltus, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. Happy New Year. Yeah. Actually, it is <laughs> yeah. Happy New Year. Oh, yeah. yeah. I guess this is still January. Yeah, January has felt like about two years long, but uh, <laughs> it is still January. <laughs> um... And let's gather ourselves. Where are yeah. we in time and space? Who knows? <laughs> New year, lots of news already. Yes. <laughs> I feel like it's just been a flood since everyone got back from the holidays and whatnot. So. In our last episode, we talked a little bit about um, the Waters of the U.S. proposal, um, but there's new legislation to talk about um, that um, we have some information to share with you on. It's the... Water Infrastructure Improvement Act, which has been signed into law, so it's not just a proposal. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's a big one. It's a good one, I think. It's based off of um, the integrated planning legislation, which is part of EPA. And so now this is um, making this more into, poli- uh, into CWA policy, Clean Water Act policy. Mm-hmm. So... Um, one aspect of this new legislation is um, opening up more room for green infrastructure as a part of um, municipal infrastructure and um, reducing stormwater flow and pollution. So also the key, the key about the, this new Water Infrastructure Improvement Act is that it's really allowing for more flexibility for communities, which is where that green infrastructure comes in. That's a really growing in a lot of major and minor cities um, as a more inexpensive and often low maintenance way to manage stormwater and limit pollution. Um, so it's great that this is becoming, you know, law. Mm-hmm. The the flexi- I'm seeing that the flexibility sounds like it's a real critical part of this too because yes. so a lot of a lot of municipalities have to meet these clean water act obligations and whatnot and with this i mean NACWA, um national association of clean water agencies actually made released a press release that says this, this will help a lot of agencies that yeah. are um that have to meet these obligations and give them the flexibility to do that in a manner and time frame that is suitable to them and their budget and that kind of thing so that's that's pretty that's that's really helpful actually so it's pretty i don't know about you but i feel like what is happening because (laughs) (laughs) we have this law this policy which is great Mm -hmm. great for communities great for the environment and then we have this new waters of the u.s proposal which feels like it's not in the same vein. I mean, they're obviously very different, mm-hmm. but still, it just seems like one step forward, one step back. Yeah, I, I can see that disconnect being there because this is less about the waterways and more about the 
water like uh like agency mm-hmm. itself yeah it's like, like obviously we know like how that's all connected and we see mm-hmm. how like that to us there's no difference i mean like we're, mm-hmm. we we have the, we made this podcast because of one water right mm-hmm. like we recognize that there is a disconnect between those two things because all water is one but that it seems that from a like lawmaking standpoint or from a congressional standpoint they don't see that same mm-hmm. under, they don't have that same understanding exactly. they don't see it yeah. the same way the way i see it implementing new things like green infrastructure is what is ultimately helping the waterways down the road Mm-hmm. But that's that's where that disconnect is, like you said. Well, like and Amy said. with the waters of the U.S. thing too, that you know, business is a big factor in that, mm-hmm. like yeah. industry and agriculture and all that. And then if this is municipal, mm-hmm. that's not a factor, right? And yeah. so that's where the politics comes in, I think. And money, oh, yeah. money, money. Yeah, it's definitely, because then it becomes an economic issue also, right. and mm-hmm. but, but that adds so many layers to the whole thing. So, going to this letter from Mm -hmm. WEF, they're talking about how improving our water infrastructure will create so many jobs Mm -hmm. and totally boost the economy. And here I am again thinking, (laughs) what is happening? It seems like a no-brainer. I mean, obviously I'm simplifying it. I'm widely simplifying it, but... yeah. That's just well, what I think when I read these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if we, we can jump to that letter. That, so WEF and, like, 90 other agencies throughout the country that are water and wastewater agencies alike all sent this open letter to um, Congre- congressional leaders urging water infrastructure, a water infrastructure bill, essentially. Uh, and this letter is filled with some, like, cra- some crazy statistics, actually. So... Um, one of the first thing is just kind of the understanding of how much money will this actually take. Um, apparently, the EPA estimates that it's $750 billion over the next 20 years, but independent estimates say it's closer to a full trillion, hmm. which is, that's a crazy amount of money. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a lot of money. That, yes. If that gives you an that indication of... <laughs> yeah, well, that, that just really expresses how old infrastructure is yeah. in certain areas of this country if it's going to take that much money to fix it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then the the other aspect of it, too, was kind of comparing, like, infrastructure tends to get lumped together. So roads, bridges, um, trains, airports, all that gets lumped with the water infrastructure. Yes. Like, there's, it, when an infrastructure bill gets passed, all of it gets lumped together. And so they, they did a good job of kind of comparing, if you look at transportation infrastructure versus the water infrastructure, mm-hmm. um, the federal contributions for transportation have remained relatively constant, but when it came to water infrastructure, there's a dec- it's declined 63% to 9% since 1977. Like federal contributions have drastically fallen off mm-hmm. when it comes to water infrastructure. So it it sounds like we we hear this I at least I hear this a lot of the whole pipe is out of sight mm-hmm. out of mind because yes. you don't see it, you exactly. don't think to change it and roads are People are using it every, sing- every single day and seeing it every single day. Mm-hmm. People use their water infrastructure every day, too, but they just don't see yeah, it. Yeah, think about it. And it doesn't, you know, but more, but more, yeah. more to what you, your point that you were saying, Lauren, is there's a whole paragraph in this dedicated to what, what the impact of this investment will make. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the first the first thing I hear is every one dollar invested in drinking water and wastewater infrastructure increases long term GDP by six dollars and thirty five cents and creates one point six new jobs and provides twenty three dollars in public health related benefits. That is a tremendous amount of yes. return on your investment for this. I mean, you're ta- you're getting almost two jobs for a dollar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's crazy. So. But that's just like the tip of the iceberg. There's so many things in this letter. I, it's on all of our sites, and we'll we'll link it in the podcast post on our sites as well. Well, and and more to the point of this too. I talked to Vanessa Libby from the Water Waste and Wastewater Equipment Manufacturers Association for my article in January on funding, and um, she made a great point that both sides of the aisle right now need a win. And, it, yeah. and it's even more, like, both sides even more need a win now that mm-hmm. the government's been shut down for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's like, I think that th- like this could be a year where they really do pass an infrastructure bill because both sides need a win. Mm-hmm. There's no election, like, immediately coming up. Right. So, the, mm-hmm. yeah. So to, mm-hmm. it just seems like a real no-brainer from the, out, the outside looking in that yeah. this would be something that everyone can get on board with because everyone wants to make yeah. water infrastructure better, right? Mm-hmm. You would think. One would think, yeah. <laughs> and what um, we were talking about just this morning is how it's pretty cool to see a lot of these water and... Um, you know, environmental associations kind of band together under this common goal. Yes. Um, and it's not just, you know, some people who are like, this is important, this is, mm-hmm. everybody knows how important this is. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're worth, they're, they're willing to put aside any differences they might have to band together for this, which is mm-hmm. and very important. Yeah, like compete. There are competing agencies yes. on this list here, yes. and they recognize that they're definitely stronger together on this mm-hmm. issue than separate. Which is that's great to see, and I, I'm all for it. And um, yeah, if, if if you're a member of an agency that you see on this on this letter. Let them know that you appreciate this if you do, um, mm-hmm. and give feedback to them. Working through them is the way that you can affect change because they, mm-hmm. they're they the ones with the boot on the ground in Washington, and they can actually take your concerns to them to Congress directly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. definitely get in touch and, and work with your agencies. A lot of these are like state agencies too, so um, that's a great way to get involved and to push push things forward well and speaking of water infrastructure um we did want to mention the latest uh lead contamination happening um i went to our web to wqp's website to kind of compile some news items um to look over to see what we've posted and if you go to our website right now the homepage is like new jersey palooza there's, there's <laughs> lead palooza. Well, yeah, lead in New Jersey palooza because it's um, not even just Newark anymore. There's, I don't know if maybe it's a statewide thing that they're doing more testing throughout the state. But so basically, in October, um, the city of Newark released results of a report, a lead and copper study that showed elevated levels of lead in homes served by one of their treatment plants um i believe they have two but it was just 
the water coming from one. So they were saying that the corrosion inhibitors in the treatment process were functioning properly. And so there were elevated lead levels and um, they were distributing, and I think they still are distributing um, water filters to families served by that plant. Which interestingly enough, in April, so I don't know math how, <laughs> six months before <laughs> I don't know math. They, so back in April, the um, National Resources Defense Council filed a lawsuit against the city of Newark, essentially saying that they were doing nothing to um, deal with a widespread lead contamination. So, and then six months later, the city announces that there's a lead problem based on the study. So essentially, they're saying that the data existed and they ignored it, which is, you know, there's some similarities to the Flint situation here, Mm -hmm. um, which the government, the local government taking, not taking action, I guess, um, even though it's coming out now that they, they knew there was a problem. Yeah, I was um, going to say, this is not new, mm-hmm, right? We, right. We've known about this. Yeah, and it just I think it was just like this study that they did that they were like, oh, no, no, we have to right. tell people. Um, and, you know, Newark, there's a oh, pretty lengthy New York Times article about this that came out when shortly after the announcement was made, um, and then they do draw some parallels to Flint, namely saying that um, it's a... They, they do have a high poverty rate in Newark, mm-hmm. which is similar to Flint. So that's, you know, where these things tend mm-hmm. to go um, unresolved. Yeah. And there were a lot of people quoted in that New York Times article, too, saying that they had no idea. And Because there, there are people who knew. I mean, obviously, there was this lawsuit six months earlier. So, like, the information was out there. But there were so many people quoted in that New York Times article saying that they didn't know anything about this until they got... Um, like a notification on their phone that they were distributing free filters to these families. So it's an ongoing situation. Um, if you look at, I was looking at Newark's website, their um, their water and sewer utility page, and they have a link. They have a link to a lead service line replacement program page, and that link doesn't go anywhere. So who knows what the, the oh, no. future of that is but and then this morning we posted um another news item that elsewhere in new jersey this isn't newark but suez um tested the water from homes coming from one of their plants in what county was that bergen and hudson counties um and they did find elevated lead levels in some of those homes that they tested so they're reevaluating their corrosion Mm -hmm. uh, chemicals and whatnot so I mean I think like I said there's so much New Jersey on our homepage right now but it's kind of like the Flint situation made these utilities and uh, even regular homeowners kind of like be more aware of their water Mm -hmm. situation you know, like we were just talking about with the infrastructure, it's not a quick fix. Like it takes mm-hmm. money and time and people, and you need people to be aware of how important it is. It's mm-hmm. not a road, but it's yeah. your health. So, well, 
and and to some extent there's only so much the utility itself can mm-hmm. can do with this too right because like they can make sure that what's coming out of their plant meets all of this mm-hmm. criteria and whatnot but if it comes into contact with a lead service line that's like the main to the home yeah where it's a section of pipe that may or may not even be under their jurisdiction to control or replace yeah. that at that point like what do they do what is the re- how can they help mm-hmm. and that that's that's where you run into another whole facet of this situation too so yeah that's a lot of like the outreach that the utility is doing to the public who may not really understand who just like thinks the government's poisoning them or whatever Mm -hmm. but they're saying you know the water there's no lead in the water when it comes into the treatment plant there's no lead in the water in the treatment plant there's no lead in the water when it leaves the treatment plant Mm -hmm. it's just once it hits the pipes well and like just looping that back to this letter about water infrastructure if there is a way that a water infrastructure bill could be passed that offers some type of matching grant or something like that for homeowners to replace lead-lined pipe Mm -hmm. from the main to their home like that could be a tremendous benefit to a lot of these communities where like like i said that municipality may or may not have the jurisdiction over that that may fall on the homeowner Mm -hmm. at which point there needs to be some way to to bridge the gap on funding for that too because yeah. that's a, that's a whole nother set for set of funding mechanisms that would need to be created yeah so and it's all underground so it's like hard mm-hmm. to it's time consuming and hard to determine like where the problem is and yeah in and, yeah yeah so well i imagine we'll see more and more of that specifically on the east coast because they must have the oldest piping in the entire yeah. country because that's where the country started well, right funny you so. should mention that but because in the um where are we february in the february issue of wqp we have a map um that outlines the number of lead service lines per state mm-hmm. um and interestingly illinois is the highest mm. which oh. i what my i don't know if this is necessarily the reason but this is my hypothesis is that I've heard many many times when in like seminars and stuff relating to lead that Chicago and I think we've mentioned this on here too the city of Chicago specifically was installing lead lines for a very long time like until they were no longer allowed to which is very recent Mm -hmm. when many many and most other cities, I guess, just like stopped yeah. way earlier. Yeah. But Chicago just kept going. And so it's such a, such a major city. I think that contributes to mm. Illinois' yeah. large number there. Yeah. I've heard that as well. Just a lot of den- just the density mm-hmm. of that network has got to be. Yeah. And the fact that they were doing it for decades longer than yes. most yeah. other cities. Yeah. Very so. insane. For sure. for sure. Yeah. Well, before we move on um, to our interview this episode, um, I did just want to bring up one cool thing that we stumbled upon. There's this um, photographer, an artist, who, and with a team of people, takes photos um, from usually an aerial point of view of different water features around the world or lack thereof. Um, the website is water.shapes.earth. <laughs> that's it no.com um and we'll link to it also in our um 
post about this episode, but um, it's very interesting. The goal is to bring attention to how we use water, how water shapes the earth, obviously, and how climate change is is changing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So some of the photos that are um, related to um, climate change are where water used to be and how the earth is shaped by that. Um, how humans are developing and changing how water shapes the earth. Um, it's very beautiful, very interesting, and kind of sad um, in a lot of ways. So it's just kind of a cool thing that we wanted to bring up um, so you guys can check it out if you're interested. So we have an interview this month. Um, I know we had been talking um, about the wildfires in California uh, over the last few months, and um, there, the Water Research Foundation uh, released a report called Wildfire Impacts on Drinking Water Treatment Process Performance, um, where they, well, did just that, evaluated the wildfire's <laughs> impact on drinking water treatment process performance. Um, and so we spoke to some of the folks involved with that project. So here is our interview with them. To get started, can we just have everyone on the call? It's, I know it's a pretty big uh, group. So we can have everybody go around and introduce yourself so everyone knows who's speaking. Sure. I can go ahead and start. Uh, my name is Kenan Ezekin. I am a unit leader uh, at Research Services Unit uh, at the Water Research Foundation. I am the research manager for this project that we will be discussing. My name is Fernando Rosario. I'm professor of environmental engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder, and I was the principal investigator for the project. I'm Mandy Honer, Amanda Honer at Washington State University in civil and environmental engineering, and I was involved in the graduate student research for this project. Great. Um, thank you all for joining us this afternoon. Um, so. To to get started, could you give us a brief summary of the research project? How did it start? Um, What made you want to explore this? What were your goals? And what were you hoping to learn? Great. Thank you for the question, Amy. Um, I can handle that. Uh, uh, Again, this is Ken Anuzekin with Water Research Foundation. At the foundation, we have several research programs. And one of the research programs that is called Tailored Collaboration. A research program. Under the tailored collaboration program, uh, the foundation partners directly with uh, uh, utilities, uh, utility subscribers on research. Uh, and uh, at any given time, a utility subscriber or group of utilities can, can approach to the foundation and obtain funding uh, for the research idea that they, they may have. So this project was funded under our tailored collaboration research uh, program, basically Six utilities uh, uh, put some funding into the project and approached the foundation to, for requesting matching fund uh, to do the project. Uh, so uh, the op- main objective of this project is to, uh, to expand the knowledge base regarding the effects of wildfire on drinking water quality, treatment, plant performance, and operations. Specifically, the project looked at understanding the impact of a wildfire on a water quality. For that, we actually choose a 
uh, watershed that was impacted by wildfire. I'm sure Mandy and Fernanda will get into that later on. Uh, the second objective was developing a lab-based approach to sim simulate the effects of wildfire on water quality and uh, treatability. And our last approach was evaluate the implication of a wildfire for full-scale operation and design. All right, great, thank you. Can you speak a little bit to the um, water quality impacts due to the wildfires? Yes, I, um, this is Fernando Rosario. I can answer this question. Um, We've known for um, that when a watershed is impacted by a wildfire, that there are numerous effects not only on the on the um, actual watershed but also on the water quality. One of the first ones that we observe is an increase in, in mobilization of particles, um, sediment that results in higher turbidity. Turbidity is an important consideration for drinking water providers, as there's a turbidity re uh, requirement when you treat water. Um, we had also. We have also observed in increases in the concentrations of nutrients um, that are exported out of watersheds. This is important because nutrients can actually result in uh, um, algae growth in reservoirs, and they can be an issue also for water providers. Um, the work that we conducted in this in this project also um, helped us understand better the dynamics regarding TOC mobilization after a wildfire into the water and also how that TLC can, be, can impact the formation of disinfection byproducts. So overall, we have um, effects that are wide-ranging all the way from enhancing turbidity all the way to potential increases in disinfection byproduct formation. Excellent. Um, so how do these wildfires impact treatment plant performance? Um, what types of things should operators consider then um, when treating water in areas affected by wildfires? I'll go ahead and take that one. This is Mandy Honer at Washington State University. And as Kanan mentioned, we worked with several different utilities on this project and not only conducted surveys, but also did our laboratory-based work. And so what we first want to note is that these really extreme sediment loads and runoff and debris flows that occur from post-fire erosion can really damage conveyance infrastructure such as clogging water intakes. And so operators should first really be prepared to kind of protect infrastructure as best as they can, and if need be, bypass water uh, as appropriate, especially when there's rainstorms in the burned areas that can really mobilize that sediment and organic material and, and carbon. Uh, further, those increased particle loads that Fernando mentioned and turbidity can have impacts on coagulation treatment, filtration, and solids handling. And in, in general, it can result in shorter filter run times and an overall reduced treatment capacity. And really, in general, water treatment plants should start to prepare for more variability in their water quality, as Fernando noted, and also that means for their treatment operations. So preparing for handling more solids and more organic carbon. And operators should really consider increasing the coagulant doses or finding other ways to optimize treatment conditions to deal with that, that degraded source water quality. And as Fernando also noted, that organic carbon uh, can lead to challenges in meeting disinfection byproduct regulations. So utilities can consider where operations might be adjusted or system improvements could be made to better remove that organic matter. 
And our studies have found that increasing the coagulant dose can help with that, or preozonation can also be effective. Gotcha. Okay. So are there like certain types of technology that are being used to prevent further contamination? What What are some some best practices when it comes to adopting technology to to work through this? Um, I, I can I can take this one. Um, this is for, again Fernando Rosario from CU Boulder. Um, after a wildfire, uh, what we observe is utilities working with um, a forest service and other agencies to try to stabilize the watershed, the slopes, and, and limit how much sediments is mobilized, and, and try to limit essentially a lot of the material from, from being um, now transported into the, into the water. Um, there are several things that are being done, such as mulching, for example, that can um, help in this process. Um, regarding the drinking water treatment side, um, we've looked at technologies such as the ones that Mandy um, uh, discussed, you know, ozonation and typical uh, conventional treatment coagulation. And um, these, uh, these steps are effective. Um, there, there's a requirement for further optimization um, in additional um, chemical costs, for example. Um, and we've, these are the things that we've looked at. Um, there's other things such as membranes and other technologies that could be used as well, but um, we haven't really done a lot of work, any work in those um, additional technologies. So how will the report's recommendations affect how we manage water resources for future fires? Good question. I can handle that. This is Ken Anasekin with Water Research Foundation again. Well, the project really did look at or came up with a few recommendations. One of those is is that throughout this project, we actually developed a framework for utilities to assess impacts of wildfire on water quality and treatment. So utilities can use this approach to de uh, develop the, in the project to test their own uh, specific case. Additionally, from the project, uh, one thing that we learned is developing alternative water supplies uh, is in advance of a wildfire uh, is a critical uh, way of dealing with some of the water quality issues that water utilities can can run run into. It, uh, on top of it, uh, having a additional water storage capacity is another uh, uh, great way of handling uh, uh, bad water quality conditions. Uh, uh, also, through our uh, one of the case studies, we learned that additional pre-sedimentation basin was very helpful to deal with uh, extra turbidity uh, uh, that was coming from the river source and then also increasing upstream water quality monitoring with early warning systems can help utilities uh, uh, to be proactive on this issue. Finally, um, having the capacity to, to conduct simple treatment evaluation tests within house is also critical so that utilities can actually test their own specific situation and then adjust the coagulant base based on the results that they get for their specific situation. Um, and then I actually have one more question um, for any of you. Was there anything that you learned in this project throughout the course of your research that surprised you? Yeah, I, I guess I can I can take um, uh, one of those. And this is Fernando Rosario from CU Boulder. Uh, one of the things that always stuck with me and is regarding the, the the carbon dynamics in watersheds. We at least in my case, I always assumed that carbon mobilization would, would have been from a, from a, from the watershed would be decreasing as essentially as you compose the material in the soil. But our work has consistently shown that actually a low temperature fire can enhance the solubility of organic carbon from the from the watershed. 
which is an interesting um, interesting effect that um, could have some implications regarding um, how we do um, uh, prescribe burning and, and how much of an effect in water quality we should expect after doing that. So that was definitely one of the one of the aspects that surprised me um, working in this uh, in this report. Great. Anyone else have anything? I guess not. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you all so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. That was great. I thought it was interesting, a lot of what we got from that, and especially since they were able to actually talk about kind of like the effect it could have not only on homeowners but on treatment mm -hmm. plants, so that was like really interesting. But um, just to tie this into some other stuff, we got an email actually after our last episode um, with some comments on a lot of these things, including um, including specifically the wildfire study and whatnot. So it was kind of cool that we were able to turn that around and get an interview on it so fast. But mm -hmm. we wanted to talk a little bit about that um, that email. Did either of you want to take their reins first? No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was Sarah Robin. She, I, I, I'll take it then. It was Sarah. Sarah <laughs> Sorry, Bob. <laughs> really leading the charge there. Thanks. <laughs> Appreciate the support. But, so anyway, um, Sarah Robin emailed us um, and with some comments on each on on episodes six, seven, and eight. Um, and one of the things that I took away from it specifically was. Um, working with tribal and disadvantaged communities. Um, so this was something that we, I, we had mentioned when talking about water equity and the interview with um, Dig Deep, because they do a lot of work similar to that. Um, and Sarah mentioned specifically that it takes a lot of time to build trust with these communities, and it can take one action mm -hmm. and to totally destroy that trust. Um, so it takes a lot a lot of time and a long haul effort like you can't just walk in solve the problem and then walk out it you have to be there for many many steps along the way and you have to be there at their beck and call to make sure that you are treating them properly and that you're actually doing this for the long term because um, if you if you show uh, any short-sighted nature of that you could totally destroy some trust that mm -hmm. needs to be there to solve their problems. So I thought that was really particularly interesting, and I think that that segment of water treatment, um, working with tribal communities and those kinds of dis and disadvantaged communities, specifically on tribal land, I think that that's a really interesting segment, and it's um, it, there's a lot to talk about there, even though it is a small segment. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's something we can touch on again later this year or next year. So Yeah. Um, she also mentioned the in episode seven when we were talking about food waste, um, and that was we received this email right around the whole romaine lettuce scare, um, and so I commented that you know I think part of that was um, attributed to polluted irrigation water, and that's how. Um, some of these contaminations were started and she made a point that um, the, the irrigation bacteria in irrigation water can actually contaminate the plants from the inside out because the plants oh. just absorb yeah, yeah. the water um, so that's an interesting 
um, effect that, that this pollution has on not just drinking water, but also our food. Mm -hmm. um, I also liked her takeaway about um, the waters of the U.S. Um, Sarah is from, um, I think Montana. Montana, I think. Um, so I think that informs some of her opinions is where she's from. And one thing that she mentioned was um, we should think about water as a community resource and not an in individual ownership item. And that's a pretty um, a nice way to put it and um, sums up a lot of the problems that we have if we had a different mindset mm -hmm. about water and how it doesn't just belong to some people, it belongs to everyone. It's a shared resource. Um, it's a one water. Yeah. Um, how how different that could inform our, our um, legislation. Yeah, that's a, that's a good takeaway, and that's something that um, I'm not sure that I had expressed very well in that episode because I was talking about how property owners, are, like where, where do you find the balance between property owner rights and the community rights mm -hmm. to water, and, and that, that seems to be a lot of the crux of that whole Waters of the U.S. thing is like, do these property owners feel like they're losing out on a right by yeah. their water now being a community resource? And it's like, well, it is a community resource. Right. So yeah, right. maybe like sometimes you have to think outside your box, you know, mm -hmm. you have to think outside your, your land, your home, your, yeah. your thing, mm -hmm. and think about we your neighbor as well. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, well, I think we, we when, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful sentiment. <laughs> when we, uh, I, I think when we got this email, we were all like, wow, this is like a great email. And so we wanted to thank you, Sarah, for sending that in. Lots of great points. And yeah. we're th thank you for letting us share them as well. Yeah, we love receiving these. Yeah. So yeah, it, if you are like Sarah and you'd like to share comments, you are welcome to um, just email talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com. Um, we do read your emails. And it in the event that uh, you're interested in us sharing your comments, we would love to share them on the podcast. Too, and so. we respond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll give a brief preview of our next upcoming issues. Sounds yeah, good. sounds good. You want to kick it off, Amy? Sure. So we're working on WQP's February issue right now. Like I mentioned, we have uh, that lead map, which is a preview to our. Um, we're doing a three-part series on lead starting in May, for May, June, July. Um, so this map is just kind of like a little teaser for that exciting um, and then our cover story this uh, this month kind of ties into water and waste digest a little bit and it also is kind of related to what we've been talking about but it's a, a membrane system that um, generates clean water from cow manure which um, is on dairy farms apparently very expensive to haul and store and build storage facilities for this so this is a way that they can provide clean water back into the environment for drinking um, and also help save them money so that's kind of our, our notable article this month um, the stormwater solutions February issue will feature a few um, different stories um, for one we're starting um, like Amy a new series this year um, throughout Stormwater in 2019, you can see a few different 
um, features on the stormwater infrastructure in major U.S. cities. Um, these are high-level overviews um, in which we use um, a committee of industry professionals to assign a grade to those major cities and their stormwater in infrastructure. Um, so it, it has a short write-up attached to it, and um, this month we're featuring Chicago. So stay tuned for that. We are also featuring some pretty awesome erosion control case studies this month, including one which involves some local students. And I love this story because the it's from an elementary school and the students are called the stream team. <laughs> and they were kind of learning from the engineers about the stream bank restoration project and learning about sustainable solutions, flooding, watersheds, all that good stuff. So it's a pretty good case study and I definitely recommend you check it out. And for Water Release Digest, we are getting in our content still. We're going to be uploading a little bit later than we normally do. So um, this this month, I'm working on an article on water scarcity. Um, I have it I have already conducted an interview about uh, Mexico wa Mexico City and the water scarcity there and kind of the reasons behind it. Um, tying this back into um, our, our all of our day zero coverage as well from last year. So um, I have two more interviews scheduled to talk a little bit about um, strategy and uh, technology that is useful in these types of situations and how these types of things can be solved. So look forward to that. Um, and then the other big thing is that we have a, a bunch of SCADA articles actually this month. So if you are interested in learning some more about a bunch of different SCADA systems, we've got three different articles coming at you this month. Um, wow. So check that out. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of SCADA content for you to read, read about. So maybe that can give you some ideas on how to use your SCADA system or optimize it uh, moving forward, so. Yeah, oh, it will help me optimize my SCADA system. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, thank you. Uh, the, yeah, that's that's basically what I got for for February right now. So, so I guess I guess we can talk a little bit about the housekeeping. As we said when talking about Sarah's email, um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so by emailing talkingunderwater@sgcmail.com. Um, we are happy to receive your emails and talk about them on air, especially if you're interested in commenting. So Yes, and also some exciting news is we now have a Facebook group. Um, if you go to facebook.com slash groups slash talking underwater, um, join that. If you want to talk water, underwater, with other listeners. Perhaps. <laughs> yes. um, join the group, talk to each other. We're all in the group talk as well. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So you could share comments there too. We we love to. We'll be reading stuff there whenever anyone posts stuff. So yeah. Um, and then the other bit of housekeeping, I guess, is we are on Google Play. We are on iTunes, and we are now also on Spotify. So if you um, want to have an easy way to get our our podcast, um, have it just automatically download and be available to you, you can use any of those platforms and just sign up and subscribe. Um, on that note, also leave. Leave a rating if you want. Um, we, it would make us appear uh, higher on standings and stuff. So um, rate, subscribe, all that great stuff. and um, Tell your friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next month. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.